Hello and welcome back to another exciting episode of DSLR Film New Podcast. Mitch from Planet 5D joins me today to discuss all kinds of stuff. Mitch, what have you been up to? Hey, DJs. Great to be here. I hate cars, by the way. I hate them with a passion. I had to get up extra early to take our car into the shop because the check engine lights on for the third time in three weeks. You know, they sell a device that you can just plug in and reset that and then pretend like there's no problem at all. (laughs) That would be awesome. I think I need one of those. (laughs) Which which reminds me, have you seen the rumor about Apple doing a self-driving car? I have, and they've been hiring a bunch of battery experts from Tesla. That's kind of an interesting move, but uh, I think self-driving cars are going to be the next big thing in about five to ten years, and they're hedging their bets. I can't wait, to be honest with you. I'm tired of driving. Uh, I really like to just have the Google car where you can just find one on the street and jump in and drive it. That's what I because I don't want to own one anymore. Well, if they do a zip... A zip model where the cars are just like parked in places and if they're self-driving, they can drive to you. So maybe you set up some sort of calendar or events and then it just shows up, picks you up, takes you where you want to go and then services other people while you're doing whatever you're doing and then comes back and gets you. That would be awesome. But if if you think about it for car companies, though, that's a little bit depressing because – if the cars are used that efficiently, then we only need about a third to a quarter of the cars that we already have right now. Think about how long your car sits at work or how long your car sits in your driveway when you're sleeping at night and so on. Exactly. Those are all wasted hours of car driving time. Exactly. I love it. Let's do it. <laughs> Sign me up, man. Yeah. So on my end, I've been editing and I've got a bunch more to do. I've got three big editing sessions this weekend. And that is one of the things I least enjoy about filmmaking is editing. Oh, man. And then on top of that, uh, this latest project was done kind of haphazardly. So a lot of the footage isn't labeled correctly and it's thrown into whatever folder somebody was shooting with. So as I go through the edits, I'm trying to find and decipher all of the shots and get them back into order again. So, ugh. Ugh is right. I mean, I even hate just doing some of the stuff that you and I do. You know, like little product reviews and stuff. I really love just doing it all in one take so that I don't have to go back and listen. And, and, you know, because half the time it takes you twice as long to do the dadgum edit as it did to record the thing in the first place. And that just slows me down. I I can't get enough accomplished if I have to edit my own stuff. See, the secret I employ is that I shoot the review in order all the way through. So then when I edit, it's just this clip, the next clip, the next clip, and they're all numbered in order. So I'm really just, um, you know, stacking them on top of each other and trimming the edges a little bit as opposed to going around and like bouncing back and forth and shooting different parts of the review and, you know, different examples and stuff like that. And you never make any mistakes in what you're saying. So there's no need to re-edit something that you screwed up, right? Yeah, actually, um, I generally do one to two takes maximum when I'm talking about a product. So I don't know if that's my skill only or if everybody else has that skill, but uh, it seems as though once I've read the product specs and gone through it, it kind of just sticks with me. Maybe that's my like sports team is cameras. You're awesome. It It is much better if you can do it in few, as few takes as possible and one run through. I do actually have been practicing extemporaneous speaking like when i'm driving in the car and i'm going to pick up my daughter i've got like 15 minutes to just talk and there's nobody else in the car so i just talk huh i actually learned uh, telemarketing as a child you know i did uh 
I'm from Nebraska, and Nebraska is the base for all telemarketing operations in the United States because we have the least um, noticeable accent. So up until about five years ago, there was telemarketing companies in pretty much every town you lived in in Nebraska, and that was the easiest place to get a job. And they paid 15 or 20 bucks an hour if you could uh, sell insurance or magazines or whatever. So that's where I got this from. You got you've got a good voice and you certainly can enunciate clearly and speak eloquently. So on that note, time for the news. Time for the news. First up, I've got the uh, Vidra lenses. We talked about this uh, last episode, and I just wanted to follow up on that. I did get an email from the founder, and he wanted to give me a little bit more information on their lenses, their Kickstarter, and their release. He wanted to point out that Defocus is a friend of the company and not a sponsor, so they are selling Defocus products in their store. Also, they'll be shipping their 16, 25, 35mm, and 50mm shortly, and they will have available for retail in about two weeks or less. So they're moving right along with their Kickstarter timeline, and things are coming along pretty fast. He also mentioned that the 12mm is due out in June, and that the 85mm that was announced last week will be out by the end of the year. They're also hoping to announce a bunch of new products at NAB, so... Good job, guys. It sounds like you are on top of it with your Kickstarter, and I'm glad to see that everything is starting to hit the market fast. This sounds like a Kickstarter success. Mitch, have you seen these lenses? I have not done much research on these. I do want to say that Karen, one of our writers at Planet 5D, actually has a post on these ready to go, and it'll probably go out tomorrow, which will be Saturday. Uh, She's also pretty excited about these lenses. So... And I'm I'm really eager to see what they've got at NAB. I mean, they get a full lineup of cinema lenses. That's pretty cool. Yeah, these are mini cinema lenses that are designed specifically for micro four-thirds cameras. So that JVC LJ or LS 300 that's coming out, which has a four-third mount, as well as many of the GH4 owners will be pretty excited about this setup. If you got in on the Kickstarter, I think you could buy the entire setup for about $2,600 which is a pretty darn good deal for a set of cinema lenses. Now they're about $1,000 a piece, so the whole set will set you back about five grand. But that's still pretty reasonable for that value of lens. Yeah, you aren't kidding. That's, that's pretty cheap if you compare it to some of the other big-name brands that would cost you maybe that much for a single lens. Well, and the other sexy thing is that uh, these are designed specifically for four-thirds, so unlike the Rokinon slash Samyung lenses, they're not giant on your camera. While those are a little bit more affordable, they're also for full frame, so they're very big compared to these guys. These are petite, and they offer actual control of your focus ring as opposed to fly-by-wire like most Micro Four Thirds lenses. Is the uh, 12 meter millimeter going to be wide enough for you? Uh, no. No, it's not. <laughs> I've got the 7 the to 14, that... I believe, yeah. and that one... Uh, that's sexy. You know, wide angle, uh, that's about equivalent to a 14 millimeter on a full frame. So, man, you can just get everything in the shot. Yeah. Karen was very interested in in something possibly a little wider for her GH4 as well. So, I'm really excited actually about the Olympus offering. They're supposed to be releasing this year a 7 to 12 millimeter, a 7 to 14 millimeter F2.8. The Panasonic that's out right now is a F4, 
and I wouldn't mind getting a little bit more low light capability out of that wide angle. It's really sexy. There's also a couple of, um, I believe, eights that are available. Uh, there's a Russian-made one, and there's an 8.3, 8.5, something like that from Rokinon as well. So those are a few options. Well, I knew you'd be interested in something a little bit wider than a 12, so I thought I'd ask. Moving on down the line to other new stuff, we've got the Elixa. This thing is a little uh, wacky here. I'm not sure. I mean, I guess I am actually sure who it's marketed at, but I'll go ahead and, <laughs> and read uh, the announcement here. Ari announces the new Elixa Mini, a versatile addition to the tools in the Ari Elixa camera range that combines the compact and light form factor with the same unparalleled image quality that has been made the Elixir system a gold standard in the industry. Uh, blah, 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 designed out of carbon fiber, very light, blah, 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 third-party camera, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, it goes on. So this is a very expensive camera, probably out of the range of ownership for a lot of us. Uh, looks like Mitch found some pricing on this, uh, 30K. It, well, that's, that's, that's an estimated pricing. That was on DP Review or DP Review, Deep Review, or however you say that. I was looking around. I saw some 30K, some 24K, some 19K. So it's still going to be above $10,000, right? Yeah, it's going to be a lot more than you and I can afford for sure. Now it that, looks pretty cool, though. It's just a little small box as opposed to a big, massive camera. They've uh, included the same sensor, I believe, as the regular Elixirs use. It's uh, got 4K and 2K internal shooting. It's got uh, some high frame rates. It can handle up to 200 frames per second or 60 frames per second at 4K. It's got some good Kodaks inside. And I think what they're aiming this for is actually just for a really lightweight operation. The body's made right. out of carbon fiber. It's got some wireless features built into it, so you can tether this via a phone or other device. And in their demo video, I believe it's called the Balloonist, they basically showcase this as being flown by a quadcopter as well. Well, I think that has more than quad. It was, what, six blades maybe? <laughs> One of the heavy-duty yeah. ones, but uh, yeah, it seems like this is angled more towards people that have to run around with a stabilizer of some kind or want to fly their expensive camera in the air. Mitch, would you put a twenty-some-thousand-dollar <laughs> camera on a quadcopter and send it up? Not without a lot of insurance, boy. Maybe it was a rental. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I can't afford stuff like that to begin with, so there's no way I'd be flying something that expensive. Yeah, you definitely want a professional to fly this for you if that was the way you're going to go. Anyway, this yeah. is an interesting camera. It's cool that uh, some of the high-end stuff is starting to be released in such a way as to sort of be available to the mid-range people. I think what's the regular Elixir? It's probably seventy or 100000 for the setup, isn't it? I don't price things like that, but I have heard 70k is is a good price if you're going to talk about the Alexa. The uh, the uh, I can't come up with the name. See, I have trouble with names just like you. The one that they the Amira, I think it's the Amira. That's the name. Uh, I think the Amira is closer to forty thousand, hmm. <laughs> something like that. I don't know. I don't. I don't keep track of those. One of the things I want to know from you is I see a lot more about CFast. What's what's your take on CFast? Aren't they really expensive? Uh, I don't know, man. Actually, I don't haven't done any research on CFast. You've caught me off guard here. Oh no! Really? Are you talking about the? Okay, you're talking about Good the proprietary um, memory cards that they're using in the ninjas right. and stuff, right? 
Okay. Yeah. I just thought those were regular compact flash cards. I didn't realize they were labeled as uh, CFast. They're just a compact flash card that handles a higher data rate and a higher output speed. So I don't know. I mean, they're a couple hundred bucks all the way up to 800 or or $1,000 if you really want the big ones. You can buy them if you want. Do you need them? Well, the reason I'm asking is because, and I'm jumping ahead, I, I remember that the rumors of the 5D Mark IV are that it might have CFAST on it, which would be a real problem for many of us in terms of affording new uh, compact flashcards. I'm looking ahead, and I'll just go ahead and jump to this story. Uh, this comes from <laughs> Camera Rumors, uh, well, Canon Rumors, excuse me, dot com. Canon Rumors, yeah. And uh, they have posted some possible specs for the 5D Mark IV, and they're even saying that it's possibly being tested out in the wild. Uh, we've got an 18-megapixel full-frame sensor, uh, good ISO range. It looks like this will keep up with the 5D Mark III as far as ISO goes. A 61-point AF system, which I believe is the same one they're using right now in the 5D Mark III. Uh, 12 frames per second shooting, uh, the CFast cards, or the just super really fast compact flash cards, and then 4K video internally. Now, that is interesting. I wonder what the data rate they're using for their 4K output is. I don't know. Uh, it, it is all very interesting stuff. By the way, there is a 61 autofocus points on the 5D Mark III. However, they are not all cross-type. Oh, it's only the center, like, um, right. diaphragm-shaped right. middle ones that are the cross-type. Right. Oh. So if, if all of them are cross-type, that would be much more appealing to many people. I don't particularly care one way or the other. <laughs> as long as it works, I don't care. I'm looking at the um, uh, requirements for these, um, these super-fast compact flashcards, and it looks like 515 megs a second read speeds and 440 megs a second write speeds. So these are basically... Just an SSD shoved into a compact flash form factor. Very much. I, right. I wonder if this is PATA standard 133 being used inside these, because if you are familiar with the compact flash standard, the card connection for it is actually what they used for many parallel ATA drives back in the day. So you could actually open up some of your old Apple devices and they had a spinning hard drive inside them and you could change them out for a solid state compact flash card. The old compact flash cards had read and write speeds somewhere in the 50 to 100 meg range. So now we're talking 500 megs. That's pretty, pretty sexy. I, I don't know if that's the same standard that applies or not. So someone else will have to chime in on that one. Yeah. <laughs> You're you're way over my head in terms of specs, buddy. You you know all these numbers, and it's it's kind of amazing. Yeah, but you got me with that CFast, man. <laughs> I just called them compact flashcards, so I didn't realize that they had specifically designated those as CFast. Are you interested and, in the five D Mark IV? Or are you gonna? Of course, I am. You gonna jump in on this right away? What if it's four or five thousand dollars? Uh, it's a business expense. Uh. I would have to see the specs, of course, but to, to, for what I'm doing, it's not really important. I mean, I can survive with my T4i and film the stuff that I'm doing. Uh, but in terms of being on the leading edge and being able to report on the thing, seeing as how we tend to talk a lot about Canon stuff on Planet 5D, I would probably jump in and get one. Uh, it is a slightly higher ISO because I think the 5D Mark 
three only goes to 102,000, and this one goes to 204,800. You know, we're all picking nits when we start getting that high. Uh, and the 12 frames per second burst speed is double what is on the 5D Mark II right now. So if that spec is correct, that's a significant speed increase for most pros who are shooting stills. But we'll still have to see whether or not those those specs are in any way right. But I don't know. The other thing that I don't know about the CFast, which I should have probably tried to look up, is whether or not it's backwards compatible. I don't know if there is a CFast reader or if if the 5D Mark IV has CFast requirement, whether or not you can still use your old cards as well as using CFast. If you're stuck having to upgrade everything, that's going to be a real problem for many people. Well, I think you'll be able to use your same card in the old slot. If they're using the standard that I was referring to either or earlier, the okay. PATA-133, the connection type is backwards compatible. It's just the amount of speed available on the bus. So right. if you have a slow card, you can still use the slow card in there. It's just you'll be limited by the card as opposed to the connection type. Um, assuming, assuming Canon writes the firmware that writes to both kinds of cards. Yeah, you know, honestly, Mitch, yeah. I think there's a standard for these, so they can't get too wacky <laughs> as far as going outside <laughs> of the box. Canon here, though. <laughs> I mean, maybe they could actually. You know, I I don't know for sure, especially since this is still just a rumored camera. And somebody right. correct me if I'm wrong on this, but I believe that uh, this newer version of Compact Flash Card uses the exact same interface as the older ones, so you don't have to worry about that. What you probably right. will have to worry about, though, is it looks like. Um, 515 megs a second, that's going to bump right up against uh, uh, card reader speeds, like standard card readers. So we may right. need some lightning connector type devices or USB 3.1 devices in order to get the data off of this as fast as it's capable of throwing it at you. Right. And that, that could be, again, another significant price. Now, what other cameras are requiring this sort of uh, memory speed from their memory cards? Uh, I don't know of any other than the higher end things like the Amira, the Alexa, um, and the fact that, you know, like the Atomos Ninja or the Shogun, like you mentioned, uh, does use C-fast C cards. I'm looking at the, you, uh, go ahead, oh, go ahead. No. <laughs> no, you just shut me down. Okay. Um, I'm looking at the uh, Wikipedia on uh, CFast cards right now, and I believe it does say that they're uh, backwards compatible. So this uses revision 2.6, and the older cards used uh, three or 2.5, 2.4. So I, I believe they are backwards compatible. Again, someone check me on that. If I'm incorrect, um, I'll make a correction in the next show. I did not have this... Uh, added to the show notes yet before we got started. <laughs> so uh, I I apologize for that. On the camera, though, I am excited that they're going to 18 megapixels. They're not going up in the pixel count. They're going down in the pixel count. And maybe that has something to do with that higher ISO range that you were talking about. Um, that could be a little bit sexier, bigger pixel. I'll be really curious to see because the 5D Mark II... Uh, if I remember correctly, it was 12 meg megapixels. Was and, it? Uh, I thought yeah, it, was it was 18 or, or... No, I, I could be wrong. You know, specs in my mind go away, but I think the 5D Mark II was 12. 
And one of the significant factors that Canon talked about when they did the 5D Mark III, going to 22.3 or 23 or whatever the right current spec is, was the fact that it was much better for reducing moray because it was a specific uh, uh, multiplication factor of 1080 by whatever, you know, 1920 by 1080. And so that's how they claimed that they got rid of a lot of the moray in the sensor was by having that multiplication ratio. So if they're going back down to 18, does that change the way the sensor works in handling the moray or not? That's, that's my question. I, I don't know. They could be using software to take care of that sort of thing as well. So there are other ways to tackle that particular feature. I'm looking at the uh, specs for the 5D Mark II right now just to double check, and it looks like it's a 21.1 megapixel. So they did go up slightly okay. when they moved from the 5D Mark II to Mark III, but it wasn't a significant jump. And then if this is going to be 18 megapixels, they would actually be going back down the scale to about right. the megapixel count for what I believe the 7D Mark II has an 18, or no, 7D Mark I yes. had an 18 megapixel sensor. The 7D so Mark II, similar. doesn't it have a 21 megapixel sensor or 20? <laughs> Man, I'm all over the place on this. I know, okay. So what I do know is the 6D has a 20.2 megapixel sensor. The 5D Mark III is well above 20 megapixel. The 5D Mark II is 21.1 and I should probably print out a list of these if I get any deeper than that. <laughs> All of the T2i series up to the T5i, I believe, or T6i, had the same sensor. And then the recent T uh, Rebel series camera just upgraded the sensor internally to what the 7D Mark II has, if, if I'm correct the on that. 7D Mark I. Mark, oh, no, the I Mark... Believe, the, I, <laughs> <laughs> I believe the 7D Mark I was 18 megapixels, and I'm pretty sure that's what the T6i is. Well, the 70 Mark I was 18 megapixels, and the sensor used in that was the same sensor used in the T2i all the way up the line. So right. if they haven't changed the sensor in the latest Rebel, and I don't have the latest Rebel specs in front of me, then it's probably still continuing to use the same 18 megapixel sensor. That would be my guess. But they did upgrade the sensor in the 70 Mark II to a higher okay. megapixel count. I'm looking I'm now, it looks like it's 24. 24. Two. Yes. Right. So 24.2 in the 70 Mark II and 18 in the previous generation. That's why the trick was in the old days to go to the T2i because you're getting the same sensor in right. that tiny little plastic camera for maybe 250, 300 bucks. Plus it had all right. the magic lantern features and stuff. So yeah, back to the 5D Mark IV. <sighs> if it's under four grand, I'll probably <laughs> buy one. If it's over four grand, I'm going to let Mitch buy one and tell me all about it. <laughs> it's a deal. Man, that's, you know, honestly, that's my threshold my threshold for paying for these is in the mid-3000s. If it gets above that, I really have to think about it. I made the mistake of buying the C100 at five and some change. And while I didn't get hurt on the deal, it wasn't very a profitable endeavor because I had to make back so much of the of the cost of the camera in actual shoots. So that hurt me a bit. And then I ended up selling it. And luckily I sold it before the price crash on that and got, uh, you know, about $800 less than I paid for it. So a year's worth of rental basically out of it. Right. But right. Uh, with these, with these uh, 5d series cameras, they seem to plummet down to $2,000 rather fast. Um, 
if you look at the 5D Mark III, it started out at what, 3,500, 3,400? And then yeah. it plummeted all the way down to 2,200 and was staying there for a while until the Magic Lantern Raw Hack came out. Then it started hitting 3,000 again. And it stayed yeah. up there until just recently, and now I'm seeing it on eBay brand new on the gray market and on the American market for $1,900 to $2,000 pretty pretty consecutively. And the D800 from Nikon was the same way. As soon as it uh, was out, it started dropping in price, and in about six to eight months, it sailed all the way down to about uh, $2,000. And now it's in the $1,700 range, and it's because... Once everybody that wanted to buy it brand new buys it, that's it. The market for that particular camera and the upgrade cycle is kind of done. Then it's just the people that are like thinking about upgrading, but not really convinced that that's enough money to spend. And those are the people that will just wait for the price to drop. And if it gets above four grand, that puts me in that category. I'm going to just wait for the price to drop and then I will jump in on the camera. Mitch, you're going to probably buy this brand new right out of the (laughs) shoot though, right? Well, when I when the 5D Mark III came out, uh, we were trying to be one of the first people to shoot a short with it. And so we ended up having to buy them, and we begged and pleaded and got the first ones out of every dealer we could find. Um, I, I'm going to be a little less tentative or a little less tent, come on, tongue, excited about buying the very first one off the, off the shelf. Uh, I do have a better relationship with a camera store around the corner by the name of Schiller's, and maybe they'll lend me one for a couple of weeks <laughs> if I can do a review and give them uh, bonus credit for it. So maybe I'll end up not buying one. We'll see. I was actually able to get, uh, I believe, LensRentals.com to send me one as soon as it showed up in their shop. So when the 5D Mark III came out, I was on the pre-order list, but I actually had a rental for the first week until the actual camera showed up from B&H. So right. that was my get it ahead of time thing. And I just wanted to play around with it. So that was less about trying to meet some kind of deadline or shoot something and me just wanting to get my hands on some new kit. And that's a thing. People do that. Yeah, yeah people do that. Uh, I was kind of sort of thinking when I got the 5D Mark III that I would potentially use it for the shoot that we were doing and try it out for a couple of months and then sell it. Uh, but I ended up falling in love with it much more than the 5D Mark II. And I think I mentioned that I've ended up keeping the 5D Mark II simply to have that comparison camera because that was the master of the brand new DSLR revolution around. So I've ended up with both of them. Uh, but I, I don't know that this one is going to be that much better uh, again, I don't need 4K. I mean, I'll practice and shoot some with it, but I, for what I'm doing, I don't need 4K. Uh, I certainly don't need ISO 204,800 because I'm never shooting outside at night. But Man, we'll that see. is one thing that makes the Sony a7S sexy, and the reason I sold off one of my 5D Mark III's, because I did have two for a while. The a7S, you know, I was out shooting a horror scene where a lady's face gets ripped off by a monster. (laughs) And we were outside and we were kind of in a, you know, in an area that we were moving in really fast, shooting and getting out. And it was late at night. No one had bothered to get permits. So we're like, well, what do we do for lighting? We grabbed the a7s. 
we grabbed the uh, Tamron 24-70 F2.8 with IS, and then we basically grabbed four cell phones with an app that will set a white balance on the screen and just turn the screen that color. So we were holding up cell phones around the shoot, and we were able to shoot it. I believe we're shooting at like 51,000 ISO, and it was just fine. Everything turned out great. Like it looks really good. It was usable, and everybody was really happy with it. And we lit the scene with cell phones. So when you, when something like this comes out and they say, oh, it's got uh, uh, 204,800 ISO, well, that range, the top of the range is always useless. They'll give you a high number and you can't really use that. Right. But it does mean that those lower and middle numbers suddenly get picked up to where they are usable. You know, right now on the uh, 5D Mark III, I believe uh, the 12,000 range is about where I would cut my losses and not move any higher than that. But right. now maybe this will make the next level up from there available for shooting and it'll make 6,400 super clean. I don't know. But uh, that's usually what kind of happens. So that's pretty sexy. Now, we're kind of talking heavy on the 5D Mark III and Mark IV. Let's go ahead and talk about the firmware downgrade, Mitch. You posted, or this was posted on on Planet 5D (laughs) earlier this week. And now I'm saying 5D Mark III for some reason. (laughs) Uh, And it turns out that you are not locked in to the 1.3.3. What do you know about this? Well, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago because I had seen it posted that the 5D Mark III's that were coming from the factory or even potentially being repaired, where they tend to upgrade your firmware for you automatically, were coming with the new version of 1.3.3. And I hate these numbers. I wish they were simpler numbers. And that... The story was that if you tried to downgrade back to 1.2.3, which is the version that Magic Lantern really loves to have, uh, especially in the latest versions, the alpha versions, I don't even think they've gone beta or any kind of official new version of Magic Lantern, but you have to have that base firmware. And according to most people that if you tried to reinstall 1.2.3 on your 5D Mark III, Canon simply wouldn't recognize the file as you tried to do the firmware upgrade or downgrade. And we had one user send us a note uh, that he created a video, and he's showing that actually if you use the Canon Utilities which come with your camera and connect your camera to a Mac or a Windows box, you can actually use the Canon utilities to install the 1.2.3 firmware upgrade, even though you couldn't do it through the compact flash upgrade process, which is what most people normally do. That's Uh, pretty cool. I, I haven't done any real deep research in that because I don't, want to upgrade my firmware to the latest version because I still want to use Magic Lantern, so I didn't try that. And I didn't want to get stuck in the point where I couldn't do it. I couldn't go backwards. So I haven't tested it, but according to the people in the Magic Lantern forum that we posted on the Planet 5D blog post, which is linked in the show notes, uh, if you use the Canon Utilities, you can downgrade back to 1.2.3. One other trick that uh, might be an option for people is if you open the firmware up in a text editor, if you look at the very first bit of hash in the text editor, 
it'll be some numbers and they'll be separated by a bunch of, of hex code and stuff. And if you look through the numbers, you'll find the firmware revision listed there. You might be able to just simply increment the number up so that it, it looks like the 1.2.3 is 1.3.4 or 1.3.3, depending on which version you're running, and trick the camera into letting you install the newest version of the firmware, which is the old version of the firmware. That was a trick that used to work with some of the older Canon cameras. So maybe that's possible here. I haven't. I kind of want to actually mess with this, but I also don't want to brick my camera. So <laughs> maybe I won't play with that. I'm excited about it. I can't wait to see what they announce at uh, NAB. Speaking of NAB, by the way, can I throw in a plug? Sure you can. Well, you, you'd be in real trouble if you said no, wouldn't you? I'd have to just <laughs> shut down the show and, and run away. We're actually going to be doing a live blog from NAB this year, and DJ posted it last year on his site. I know DJ's not going to be able to go to NAB. Boo-hoo. Sorry. Uh, but for those of you who are watching and listening, uh, tune in to NABLiveBlog.com or come to Planet 5D or go to DJ's DSLR Film Noob. There will be a live blog, and we have probably 25 to 50. If I can get up to 50, I'll be really excited. Reporters reporting from the show floor. So it's going to be a lot of news posted. It's not just a tiny little one thing an hour kind of live stream. There's going to be a lot of news showing up this year. And I think that's going to be really cool. And if you are going to NAB and want to be one of the reporters, let me know. Mitch's coverage of NAB is really good. As an individual blogger or writer, it's really hard to go check out everything, put out videos for everything. But when we all kind of gang together, then we can all look at the stuff we're specifically interested in and cover a lot more ground than one person alone. So... It's definitely yeah. cool that you're bringing everybody together in that live blog. I, I I appreciate you saying that because, you know, there are some websites that want to, and I don't blame them. They have their reasons. They want to be sort of a silo where they just show their stuff, and that's cool. Uh, but I like to share as much pos as, as possible if I can get my tongue to work. And I figure if everybody's working together in one live stream, we can all have a whole lot more readers and, and get a lot more content. So that will bring more more readers, right, if, if everybody's working together. Now, speaking of sharing here, the Sam or Sarah Monk, Sarah Monk, how do you pronounce that? Uh, this oh, audio. You're asking me? Uh, Sarah Monk. I'm going to go with Sarah Monk. Sarah Monk. Sarah Monic, uh, this is a new audio adapter, and in the past, Beach Tech and, uh, to a lesser extent, uh, Studio One, and then, of course, uh, Juice Link have kind of cornered that market of audio interfaces for your cameras. The Sarah Monic is a new company to the range, and they're offering a new SRAX107. Again, we're going with the catchy names here. But this built-in uh, 20 dB of gain amplifier for your camera is bottom camera mountable. It has the thumb screw that's available on Beach Tech units, which makes those a little bit handier to use. It has two cold shoe adapters on either side, and it has an isolating transformer. And this is all in the price range of $199. This is a very attractive-looking offering. I have yet to test the audio on this, but for audio interfaces, man... That's an affordable brand new price and means that the used price will probably be even lower. Mitch, have you tested or seen any of this? And this is the first I have seen this, and it looks pretty darn appealing, especially at that price range. It seems to have a lot of the features that uh, the Beach Tech and the Juice Link, like you mentioned, have on them. 
I like the cold shoe mounts on the side. That's pretty cool. I don't like the fact that it's a 9-volt battery. I tend to really hate things that are 9-volt batteries these days because I don't have rechargeables that uh, maybe they exist, not rechargeable 9 volts, but I tend to use a lot of AA and AAA rechargeable batteries these days as opposed to buying a 9-volt and then having to throw it away. But the price point on this is really cool. Have you seen anything from these guys before? I've never heard of Ceremonic. I've seen a few of the Ceremonic adapters. They were passive adapters, and they were basically designed to bring in two wireless systems, like if you have two lav mics or whatever, into the box and then mix those into a stereo signal and send them into the camera. This is the first active system I've seen, and they released the 107, which is the one with the isolating transformers, as well as the 104, which doesn't have the isolating transformers but still basically performs most of the same tasks. And they're at 169 and 199 respectively. I've contacted them about possibly getting a review unit, and if they don't want to send me one, I'll probably just go ahead and buy one because... <laughs> don't say that on the air. They'll hear you. Yeah. You know, one ninety nine. that's a really good <laughs> price, guys. Honestly, yeah, it is. if it doesn't suck, it. I mean, if it even does okay, it's probably going to be worth checking out. Uh, 20 dB a gain, that's more gain than you get out of the Beach Tech units or the Asden units. I believe those are rated at about 16 and 15, respectively. It's not as much gain as you get out of the Riggy RM333. Uh, Juice Tech or Juice Link does have really excellent preamps, and they provide, I believe, 40 in the range of 40 dB a gain out of their preamps. So they have a lot of headroom, but still, 199. Whereas the Riggy, I believe, sits at uh, 499 or 400 dollars, uh, maybe 399 yeah. now. Uh, that's pretty expensive comparatively. So if this sounds decent or sounds good, in fact, then it's probably worth considering. To comment on your 9-volt battery issue, though, um, part of the reason they use 9 volts in this is actually because of the type of circuits that are used in audio devices. That's why a lot of the stomp pedals and stuff for guitars also use 9-volt batteries. But there is one company that makes one that runs on AA batteries. You have to shove four of them into a little weird package thing and then jam them in there, and it doesn't have nearly the runtime. Uh, but Asden's offering does support four batteries and it looks almost identical to the beach tech unit it's got the big knobs and everything and the only difference really is that it has a little bit less gain and then it has a uh, harder to use attachment screw you have to use like an allen or something like that or a flathead to attach it that's one of the things that and I've actually talked to Robert from Juice Link a few times about this. I'm like, man, why don't you put the thumb screw on there? Because that's really handy. And why don't you make your knobs big? Because the knobs are always so tiny. And he's like, yeah. well, I want stuff to be super small and I want it to be compact. And there's a trade-off. And I understand that trade-off and I know what he's, he's saying by that and that he does want it to be small. But I still, I wish that we could somehow marry a Beach Tech and a Juice Link together so that we have big knobs, we have, you know, easy to attach screws and we have a nice like mounting plate system. And then this is kind of doing that sort of thing with the extra cold shoes on the side. I mean, imagine you don't have to have an extra rig around your camera. You can just slide in two wireless units on either side, mix them into the XLR inputs on the front. And now you have nice big knobs. This has AGC disable if you need it, which isn't really a thing for uh, 5D Mark III and Mark II owners, but if you have right. some of the other cameras that still have that issue, the older ones, that's an option as well. So this is offering up a lot of stuff. It even has a headphone amplifier in there. And while I I'm not that. cool with the headphone amplifier necessarily, 
um, guys monitor the audio that the camera's actually recording and not the device that's sending the audio to your camera because then you have no idea what's going on. But it's still cool that they have that. I mean, I'm sure somebody's going to be excited about that. So that's really nice as well. And you could maybe even use the headphone out as a output to your camera, I guess, if you wanted some kind of mixing options. There might be a way to do that properly. 199 <laughs> I think that says it all. Yeah, that, I, that's, that's the biggest key for me is that price. I mean, that's that's almost half the price of the Juice Link. Keep an eye out, guys. I'll probably have a review of this coming up in a week or two. I've got links to it in the show notes as well if you want to look into this a little bit deeper. They are available on Amazon. I haven't checked B&H yet to see if they're up on B&H, so they may or may not be there. Uh, originally, I only saw these popping up on eBay, so it's nice to see that they're actually getting to uh, regular retailers that people normally use. I, I may be one of the few out there that continues to buy all my gear from eBay. Now, talking more about audio stuff here, I've also got in the Asden dual wireless system. This is the Asden 330LT UHF system. And the unique thing about this is that the receiver is actually capable of receiving two different LAV packs back to the camera. As opposed to having multiple receivers hanging off your camera, you have a single receiver and you're able to hand out two mics to your talent and bring it back to that unit and send it out stereo to the camera. This thing is in the $650 to $750 range, depending on whether you buy it new or used. And there are some used versions on Amazon right now. I normally use the Sennheiser G-Series systems because those are really reliable, made out of metal, and uh, they sound great. The lav mics included in this kit, I've got some audio samples, and you can find those in the show notes or at dslrfilmnoob.com. The lavs are not that good. You're going to want to upgrade your lavs right away. I went ahead and picked up some new lavs for this kit. But, uh, man, 650 that's less than two Sennheiser units. So even at 800 that's a lot less than two Sennheiser units. So yeah. this is a pretty affordable deal. It is made out of plastic. I, Mitch, do you have you seen this? Do you know anything about it? I only know what you sent me, buddy, but uh, the... The audio recording sounded pretty good that you have on the site. Now, there are a a few caveats to this guy. Um, Right. One of the things that, and I note this in the article I wrote up on this, is that if you have one receiver turned off and one transmitter turned on, you're okay. But if you have both receivers turned on and one transmitter turned off, the second channel doesn't have squelch. So it starts getting all kinds of noise and weird stuff artifacting into the audio. So make sure you pay attention to that if you do decide to go with this unit. you got to turn one channel off on the receiver if you're only using one loft pack. And also, and there was a couple questions about this, and people were asking why is the audio only in one channel. Well, what this is doing is it's bringing in a left and a right channel for each of your loft packs. So if you only have one on, you're only going to get audio on, say, the left channel. And if you have both of them on, you're going to get them on the right and the left channel. But depending on which channel you choose, it could be on the right channel only or on the left channel only. So keep that in mind, too, if you're looking into this guy. It's pretty sexy. I'm Even though it's not uh, metal and it's not as durable as my Sennheiser systems, it runs on AA batteries. It's pretty easy to use. There's a few caveats, like the volume knob on this is actually, uh, it requires a plastic screwdriver, which is dumb. Yeah, so you... 
I haven't talked about this yet, but it'll be in the full review. You have to remove the the plastic battery case, and there's a little like white plastic screw in there, and they include a screwdriver with each of the lav packs, and you adjust the input level based on this uh, screw position. So you have to twist that around in order to get the lav set up correctly. Oh, man. Yeah, that's kind of dumb. Um, not the best way to design this. But again, and- this is a very affordable two-system <laughs> unit, so I guess they had to right. cut corners. Yeah, but come on. Uh, okay, here's the simple question: Is there a place to store the little plastic screwdriver, or you're, are you going to lose that in your kit? Uh, no, there is actually a place to store the driver or the screwdriver, Yay! and it's like a little uh, clip type piece inside the battery compartment that holds it in place. They also provide an extra one inside of the receiver, so if you manage to lose both transmitter screwdrivers, you still have another screwdriver available in the receiver pack. So that's pretty handy. Uh, the they they compromised quite a bit on this setup. The lav mics are junk. Um, they right. they don't sound good at all. So you're gonna have to buy new lavs right away. And even I've been testing the JK lavs with this set, and uh, those sound better than the uh, Sennheiser or the Asden mics that come with this. So that's a thing. Um, also the receiver itself is pretty chunky because it is two receivers inside of one box. So you do have a rather large thing hanging off your camera instead of two small things hanging off your camera. So if that's an issue that could, that could be something that bothers you. Also the durability of this and the, the design of that whole screwdriver thing is just, you know, it's dumb, <laughs> but again, six fifty. um, you can find these for, they have a warehouse deals on Amazon right now for six fifty. And the higher or the brand new out of the box models are seven hundred and fifty dollars. So, you know, a Sennheiser unit, my G three, um, I believe that's like six hundred dollars or five eighty a piece. So you're talking a grand or more for two of these. Whereas you can pick this up for six fifty to seven hundred. So that's saving you three to four hundred dollars depending on how you buy it. And for that, I mean, maybe you're willing to compromise with the the screwdriver type system and the other issues that are available, or you know, a problem on this particular setup. Mitch, would you buy one of these? Um, I don't currently have a need for it, but I do love the fact that the price is about half or two thirds of what a regular dual unit is. So it's certainly appealing. Uh, how often do you actually? change the volume level that you need the little plastic screwdriver maybe that's maybe that's acceptable to just set it once and leave it right honestly it is um so when okay. i talk i talk pretty much the same volume level all the time so a pack for me it's set and forget and for most people unless you're dealing with somebody that's small petite that has a really wispy voice you don't have to do any major adjustments to this and it's usually something that you can kind of just even if you forget about you're good to go when I'm, I've been using this on a few projects now, uh, basically, I listen to the camera, and if it doesn't sound bad, I don't even mess with it. I just leave it alone. Right. So right. you're right. That's an, a great point, is you're probably not going to be dinking around with the volume very much. And it's the same on the Sennheiser units. They're actually a pain to set as well. You have to press a bunch of buttons, hold something down, and then open up the case, and there's another button hidden underneath that. And then you have to scroll through a bunch of menus and then select something and then scroll through that menu, set it, and then get back out of the menu system again. So by the time you do that, it's probably just as easy as grabbing the screwdriver and turning the you know volume level on this up or down a little bit. So there it is. I'll be testing it. There should be a full review out coming up in the next week or so as I move through the review items. 
And that looks like that's most of the news here. I've got a few discussion topics down at the bottom of the show notes here, Mitch. But first, I wanted to talk to you about this article that you posted of, I believe, Apple shooting with a iPad Air for their their latest commercial. Yeah, it's it's a very interesting topic. The Oscars were this past Monday, and Apple had an iPad Air 2 commercial Air that was shot entirely with the iPad 2 Air. iPad it's Air 2. It's a lot of Air. It was demonstrating some high school students that were working on a project where the the teacher said go out and film a little short with the iPad 2 Air, which they obviously had in class. Uh, it's fascinating to me in that, you know, here's a, a commercial that was obviously shot uh, with technology that is not quote-unquote current filmmaking technology. Uh, we have had uh, an iPhone 2 or an iPhone, an iPhone movie that was shown at Sundance this year, which ended up getting a distribution deal. So it's it's just a trend. And uh, as you noted in the show notes as well, Vincent LaFerre posted an article just this week on smartphones and how they end up using uh, smartphones a lot more often sometimes than his regular cameras. So it's it's a trend to be aware of. I've gotten hate mail from people who write to me and say, you know, professionals won't ever use smartphones or tablets to record things. And my response to them always is, it may not take over the entire world, but you need to be able to have another tool in your toolbox. And a smartphone can be very advantageous in certain situations. Uh, it's much like choosing the right camera for the job or the right microphone for the job or the right light for the job. Uh, eventually, there's a possibility that we ne- may never use smart or, or DSLR, for example, again. But the advantages of DSLRs are the fact that you can change lenses. Can you do that with a smartphone? Well, you have to start adding attachments. And, of course, there's the... Sony that we talked about a couple of weeks ago with the uh, the lens slash sensor attaching to your smartphone. Oh, the so Olympus maybe... Air, another yeah. Air-named uh, device. Yeah. yeah, it was Olympus, I'm sorry. But Sony has one too, right? Yes, uh, Sony oh. has the RX something. It's a, it's a lens on an adapter. But yeah, you're right. Those are all interesting ways of attaching stuff to your camera or to your phone to make your phone into a full-fledged camera. The, the cool thing, and we've talked about this before, is the fact that the smartphone has the accessibility of additional software. People can write code and submit it to the Apple Store or to the Google Play Store and have software, much like Magic Lantern for the Canon cameras, to add additional functionality that the manufacturer didn't provide, which just gives you more flexibility. And that's you know, that's the whole point of Vincent's post as well as our post about the Oscar ad is the fact that people need to be aware of all these awesome tools. The more tools we have, the better job we can do as filmmakers, commercial shooters, talking head guys and reviewers like you and me. Uh, sometimes I just use my iPhone to shoot a quick and dirty video. It's, it's a great tool. 
I uh, went ahead and added this to the show notes because it's something interesting to take a look at as well. It's the 25 most popular smartphone photos on Flickr right now for 2014. And I'm looking through this uh, set of images and they're all pretty gorgeous and really cool. Great ideas. Lots of interesting things. One of the things that uh, people who complain about smartphone images don't really talk about is that at one point in time in the world, you were limited to the ISO of the film that you were shooting on and whatever you had in stock with you when you were going out. The cell phone, I kind of want to relate to that a little bit because in the old days, as a photojournalist or someone else, you didn't necessarily carry around a bunch of lenses and a bunch of, you know, a camera that had the range that we have now. You had one tool and that tool was, you know, whatever ISO film that you had shoved into that thing and whatever lens you had attached and that was it. You didn't have these options of like, you know, switching stuff up all the time and doing a bunch of different stuff. You had to like hope that you chose the right thing for when you went out and shot something. And I feel like that's kind of what the smartphone offers. It's not the end all tool for everything and you you can't use it for everything, but it does offer another option for shooting and you can get spectacular pictures with any camera if it's used correctly and it's taken to the right lighting situation and so on. And these Flickr photos are a great example of that. I'm sure some of these have been, you know, uh, Instagrammed or hip or hipified or whatever tool they Photoshopped. use, photoshopped. Yeah. But uh, still, they all look really cool, and they were all taken with cell phones. So that doesn't mean that you're limited just because you're shooting on a cell phone. And I have a few shots in my collection that I actually kind of love that were taken on my uh, HTC One. And that has a decent camera, but it's not anything near as good as any of the other cameras I have in my office. So, you know, why did I take a picture with that when I had my GH4 with me? I don't know, because it was in my hand and I was already doing something. And I'm like, oh, shoot, I need to get a shot of that. And then I took it and I was like, wow, that turned out really good. I'm going to go ahead and yeah. keep that shot. It's, yep. it's good enough sometimes. And uh, these images are kind of uh, a proof of performance. There's a lot of really cool shots here. Not all of them are high res or or uh perfect you know i'm looking at the the number one shot here at the very bottom which is a leaf by a match and you can see it's pretty grainy and kind of uh poorly shot that one's more creative than it is beauty but uh, some of these man you know you run a denoising filter through this and you do a little bit of hdr correction and you could really get some cool stuff out of this and really clean up these images pretty well there are there are a lot of awesome images on this list, and I like you. I tend to like in when it's warm. I don't walk outside in the in the winter when it's cold. But yeah, I have my iPhone with me, and I've got a whole series of photos that I take of strange things that I find out on my walk. And I'm not going to carry my DSLR with me when I'm out shooting that or doing that kind of activity. It's out. I'm out for exercise. Uh, it is amazing, and I think that's a very valid point. I'm glad you brought that up about the the way we used to shoot with film was we were stuck with an ISO. That's it's an awesome point. We had one lens with us probably, and we we did what we needed to do with what we had, and that's very much what we're doing with DSLRs. And I mean, sorry, with smartphones and. They're all just tools to accomplish a job. Don't get so wrapped up in the fact that it's a smartphone and it's not a dslr or it's not an airy alexa uh, you know it's it is what it is and use it the way you can use it be creative be be focused on doing the job you need to do and 
griping about the, what kind of a device it is. It, I, my feeling to those people who write me is that, you know, if you're, if you're really that concerned about your job, then you need to be changing jobs or focusing more on what you're doing, not so much the device you're doing it with. Grow up and, and realize that times change. They've always changed. They're always going to be changing. And if you don't change with them, you're going to be the dinosaur that loses a job. Now, to take the flip side on this, these are some remarkable photos for a cell phone camera, but I would also encourage you to go visit a website called youarenotaphotographer.com, in which uh, <laughs> they also feature many cell phone shots, and that is hilarious to go check out. They are just some of the most uh, egregious photos I've seen in a while, and every time they post something new, I'm immediately there to go giggle <laughs> at like where they've put a baby or what they've done with the shot. So uh, that's the other side of cell phone shooting. When everybody has a camera, <laughs> any picture can be the picture they take, and uh, many times people choose to take things <laughs> that are not necessarily... Oh, man. Yeah, I've never seen this site before. This is <laughs> this is hilarious. Yeah, that's what I um I direct people to. There's a he has a really interesting write up that's like a guide to being a professional photographer, and it's like basically like you are not a, prof a professional photographer, and like you must complete all of these steps first before I will let, you know consider you as such. And it's kind of good because in my area right now, what you see a lot is um, shops popping up all over the place for. A couple of months, there were actually eight photographers running in the town I live in. And this is a town of like 15,000 people. There is not enough photography work for that many people to be photographers, quote unquote. And what was going on is these people were going to Walmart and they were buying a camera and they're like, man, now I've got this awesome camera. I'm going to be a yeah. photographer. And they're going to, you know, they open up a studio, they rent out some space for a while, realize that they can't make any money and then move on. But it confuses everybody else that's you know, going to a photographer to get, you know, their senior pictures, their wedding pictures or, or what have you, they go to these places and they get horrible photos. And then they're like, well, I could just take this with my cell phone and it'd be just as good as this professional photographer. Well, you didn't actually visit a yeah. professional photographer. The tools are the tools, but, uh, the expert and actually digital rev, if you ever go watch the, that YouTube channel, they do a great thing where it's, uh, um, a professional photographer, amateur tool. And they like hand somebody like a Lego camera or a Barbie camera and they ask him to make yeah. something good. And that's where you see that, listen, there is talent to the, the portion of actually capturing the image. So you do need to know all of those things, framing and, and subject matter and so on in order to, to, to do a good job. Um, but yeah, check out you are not a photographer.com. That is a, a, a great, great website it'll give you yeah. at least an hour or two of laughing uh moving on down the line i did a test on this memory card and i know memory cards are not the super sexiest things in the world but this is the transcend 128 gig sdxc card you can pick these up for about uh 65 to 69 dollars depending on when they're on sale on amazon and this memory card offers up a ton of space and it's the first one i've ever tested that actually had write speeds faster than advertised the read-write speeds are advertised on this at uh, 95 and 60, respectively. And I was getting 63 and 64 meg write speeds out of this card. It, Samsung, or excuse me, not Samsung, SamDisk is notorious for offering up these values that are really high. And then they say up to as a modifier right before that. 
And when you actually right. run the test, you get good results, but you never get the result that is advertised. So I'm really impressed by uh, Transcend. I know a few people have been burned by their cards in the past. I've had good luck with them. And now I'm going to run this 128 gig SDXC card in production for a little while. And if it doesn't fail on me or go crazy, I will probably buy a couple more because that's a really good price for that much capacity. Mitch, do you use any generic cards or do you stick completely to SanDisk? Uh, I buy whatever I can get my hands on that's cheap. Uh, I do have several Transcend cards and I have not had any problems. I don't tend to buy, I, I shouldn't say whatever is generic. I, I do tend to buy SanDisk when I can, when it's on sale. Uh, but I, I have several cards that are, are not branded and they seem to get the job done. I, I'm not a fanatic, I think, like you are, that tests them individually. Uh, I do have one card that is kind of flaky, and I tend to not use it anymore. So as as they burn up, I guess I just get rid of them. Uh, there but, is a company that I, I risked using, and I've continued to use their cards, and they have really good prices. Uh, they're called uh, Computer Bay. And right. that isn't a name that like you normally hear as, oh, man, the brand I can trust, but... Uh, their deal is that they buy stuff that doesn't quite meet the uh, QA testity or testing from other card manufacturers and then sell them cheaper. So you can get 128 gig cards from them and uh, they label them kind of generically at 600X or, or what have you because everybody still bases their write speeds and read speeds on CD-ROM drives for whatever reason. Um, but it's interesting <laughs> that those memory cards are very affordable and I have had no problems with them so far. So I guess that's good. I've even got this guy right here, which is FileMate. This is what I used to shoot in my uh, 5D Mark II back in the day. And, uh, you know, this card still works. I use it on a regular basis. I don't use it as much because it's only uh, 16 gig capacity. So it's not uh, something that I really need anymore as I have mostly 32 gig and above. But it's interesting that this card, after, I don't know, six years, seven years, is still sitting on my desk available and works just fine. So no complaints from me on these generic uh, cards. And Transcend is by no means generic. They've been making cards for a long time. Uh, their card does feel a little bit more substantial in the hand than the Computer Bay cards. Um, the Computer Bay cards tend to feel like kind of a little bit of chintzy plastic. The Transcend cards, this 128 gig card, Feels really solid, so I don't know if they put extra bracing in there or what's going on, but uh, pretty happy with it. Uh, if it doesn't fail me in the next three or four months, I'll probably buy three or four more and throw those in my kit because with the GH4, I kind of do want that much capacity now for everything. How many of your cards have gone through the wash? I've only had one <laughs> company fail me um, dramatically, and that was A-Data. Uh, A-Data cards, I don't know what the deal is. I was able to rescue my stuff off of them, but the file recovery system I used, I believe it's called the Disk Digger, um, it doesn't label or actually detect proper endings for files when they're corrupted. So you, when you pull all your stuff off, it just gives you like sector lists, and uh, cool. they're named with you know a binary code or whatever. So you, then you have to kind of dig through, and if the file got corrupted because the card was going south you have the video footage up until it corrupts and then you just have like square pixels all over the screen. So then you have to try and, you know, make something out of that. And I was lucky. 
I was able to rescue the card, get all the data off, and save enough of the footage to continue the project and not scrap everything or have to reshoot. So that's good. But uh, ADATA, that's the only card brand I've run into that I now avoid. And I actually had more than one of those ADATA cards fail. So if you go back to one of my really old YouTube videos, I think I was talking about ADATA cards. Now I avoid ADATA cards. And I don't even know if they make cards much anymore. The other thing to note... Oh, sorry. The other thing to note is that Transcend, because they have had a few like rocky years in their delivery system, they now offer a full lifetime warranty on their cards as well as free recovery software for their cards. So that may sweeten the deal a little bit for those of you who are a little bit nervous about Transcend as a brand as a brand of card. Um, I've not had a problem with them, but it is cool that now anytime I have a card that goes bad, I can just send it back or you know, if I somehow it fails or whatever. And that's a nice thing to know about. It is, it, it, especially the fact that they sometimes do fail. Um, I have washed several of my cards in the washing machine, and they survived. Oh, you mean uh, literally I, wash? Yeah, I, I, that's what I was asking. Um, I, I've always been impressed by compact flashcards because they're very damn sturdy. Uh, SD cards I hate with a passion because they tend to break the plastic crappy and I wish nobody would ever use them again. I understand that compact flash cards are bigger. Uh, Computer Bay actually is, I believe, the place where I buy my memory for my iMac because they're cheaper than, of course, Apple. And uh, if if I'm not mistaken, that's the last place I bought memory for my computer. One, well. one warning uh, on compact flashcards, though, that I've had an issue with is if you get an overly zealous assistant shoving them into your camera, sometimes they will bend pins. And right. if you ever look at the interface for a compact flashcard, it is a bunch of really tiny pins going into these tiny holes on your CF card. And right. if someone jams it in there incorrectly, you can literally break those off into the card or you can worse bend them down in the camera and then have to send your You're entire screwed. body in to be yep. replaced because uh, once you break that, well, I, I shouldn't say this, this isn't for every card or every camera, but for many of the cameras, if you break the CF card reader on there, you have basically destroyed the motherboard inside the camera and you have to send it back in and get a replacement. With wow. the Mark three it has the sdxc card reader as well as the cf card reader so you could revert to the other one if you broke it so that's kind of nice and then i believe the 70 mark ii actually has that section isolated um on a connector pin to the board itself so they can just replace that section uh go check out the teardown on that Uh, i believe they have it over at lensrentals.com he's got a great blog where he tears down all the new cameras he does he does a lot of cool stuff and I check those out just because I like to see what's inside the camera, and I do not want to tear down my own camera. One last thing on the list before we move to the pick of the week is actually this guy right here. This is the Aspen Lav Mic setup, and these have been kind of showing up on a lot of blogs lately. They've been sending these out as samplers to a lot of people, and I was looking at this, and then I was listening to it, and I was like, man, there's a generic microphone called the JK Mic-J044 that looks almost identical to this. So I started doing some audio testing, A-B testing with uh, this Aspen mic, which is about $60, and the JK mics, which are about $29 to $30. And to my ear, they sound almost identical. The only thing you're really getting out of this versus the other one is the wiring is slightly different. 
which means they basically provide the audio to both the left and right channels from your lav mic as opposed to just the left channel. So the wire that goes to the mic is a little bit thicker, but the audio quality is identical. The case is the other nice thing. They do provide this like little tin case that's, you know, a Mintos style case for your mic. <laughs> but I mean, for double the price, it seems as though this might not be the option for everybody. Definitely consider listening to those audio samples and let me know what you think. The JK mics are really cheap and you can find them all over the place. And they're, uh, they sound as good as these Aspen mics that people have been promoting. So Aspen mic, $60, JK mic, $30. There you go. Well, I, I want to note, by the way, if anybody's listening to this on YouTube and I apologize, I I'm reading the comments and there are several people that are really, uh, not hearing you very well, and I, I'm really praying that your audio recording that's going into your te- uh, te- uh, uh, come on 6CD is working okay. But I apologize to you guys out there that are still sticking with us that the audio from DJ's side, and I think it's just DJ's side. I don't know if my side is busting up either, but sorry about that, guys. Yeah, the this may be one to go listen to on the podcast. Uh, the podcast audio is being recorded separately. I'm not sure what Google is doing to my audio. So I apologize for that. And maybe there's a way I can add the audio from the podcast as a soundtrack to this particular video. Uh, moving, Wouldn't that be fun? Yeah. You, you can use your uh, dual sync capabilities to sync the audio from one to the other, right? <laughs> ah. uh, maybe I mean, you'd, I have can... to, you'd have to re-upload the video permanently because i hate you i hate youtube in that you can't replace a video why is that youtube why can't you replace a video when you can fix it <laughs> i don't and know i've got one i've got one video that has several hundred thousand views and i i screwed up the titles on it and i've always wanted to go fix it but at the same time i don't want to lose all of the views and all of the notes and all that other stuff i can't re-upload a new version you can do that on Vimeo. You can do it on other sites, but YouTube won't let you upload a fixed version. I hate that. Well, maybe the- I'll I'll pull the video down afterwards, fix the audio, and send it back up. I apologize. I cannot see or hear that particular portion. <laughs> I'm monitoring from the audio recording. Uh, moving um, on to the last thing on the list here, I'm going to skip over the Panasonic lenses. There's a couple announced. Fine. You can check those out. Uh, Mitch will have some posts on that, as uh, so will I most likely um to the pick of the week i already actually discussed mine the transcend 128 gig sdxc card mitch what do you have here you jumped ahead shame on you uh my pick of the week is something that i i think is pretty cool if you're using final cut 10 or final cut x as some people say uh my good friend denver over at color grading central has released a really cool new uh, color grading tool that works right inside Final Cut. I know some people are doing these round trip things where they're having to send the Final Cut out to another program to do the color grading and then come back in. Uh, this has gotten some big excitement in the Final Cut 10 world. And right now, before March 3rd, if you're watching this and you're interested, you can get a $20 discount if you go over to the Planet 5D post and find the coupon code Planet 5D. Uh, pretty cool stuff. I, uh, some people say it's not that great because there are other plugins that may do something similar, but those people that I know that have tried it are just like, this is awesome. So if you're doing color grading in Final Cut 10, 
just give it a look. If you don't like it, don't buy it. Huh. I do not grade on a Mac, so Premiere is my only tool, man. But it it is interesting. I do like seeing uh, new and different grading tools. I'm kind of a cheater and often use curves. So shudder at that. Shudder at that. (laughs) I'm shuddering. (laughs) <laughs> on that note uh, this wraps up another exciting episode of DSLR Film Noob podcast you can find us on iTunes under DSLR Film Noob you can find us on SoundCloud also under the same title and you can swing over to Reddit at r slash DSLR and comment there for updates on the show uh, if you want questions answered or what have you that's a great place to kind of interact with myself and maybe even Mitch a little bit uh, Mitch where can people find you? I'm at a website called Planet5D.com, and I also have some other projects that you can find out at PlanetMitch.com. Also, for those of you who use Twitter and some of the other social media sites, you can find us on Facebook, you can find us on Twitter, and oftentimes I will respond to you faster on Twitter. So there's a secret pro tip if you have a question that you're trying to get to me directly. That goes to my phone, unfortunately, so it buzzes all the time. On that note, that concludes another exciting episode of DSLR Film Noob Podcast. (laughs) 